I want to begin by saying what, it's a, what a joy it's been for Megan and I and for our children to be a part of this church the last 10 months. Uh, when we came from China last summer, we did not think it was going to be this long. Uh, that's been hard for us in some ways, but uh, the provision of God in you has been just amazing to us. Uh, you have loved us well through chemotherapy. Uh, it's been uh, just such an encouragement to have so many of you come up to us in the midst of our struggles and tell us that you're praying for us. Uh, and just watching your faith, watching you gather through the pandemic, watching you in the midst of a time when opinions swirl about how to deal with these things, watching your unity, uh, just so many things we're thankful for. So thank you for loving us well. We're, we're headed to Jefferson Park Baptist Church in Charlottesville, Virginia, the next couple months uh, to provide pulpit supply for that church as their senior pastor is on sabbatical. Appreciate your prayers uh, that that time would go well. Uh, and maybe the last thing I'll say uh, in this regard is how much I appreciate the ministry of your elders. Uh, I think that in a congregational church, it's usually the case that people get the leaders that they deserve. Uh, and in that regard, Jed uh, and Mike and Dennis speak very well about you as a congregation. So thank you especially to you brothers as well. Our text this morning directs us to think about the world of money and investments. Uh, I don't know how you feel about money and investments. I imagine there are differences among us. Uh, some of us are up on the status of the Dow and the NASDAQ in a daily sort of way. Some of you read the Wall Street Journal. I don't know how. Uh, some of you are down with the ROI and the EPS. Uh, some of you invest money for a living. Some of you do it as a hobby and you're quite good at it. Uh, others might be more like me, just hoping to save something for a rainy day and maybe have something for retirement. When Megan and I go to weddings, we still joke about the line in the vows where the pastor wants you to say, with all my worldly goods, I be endowed. And we laugh because on our wedding day, the all my worldly goods was a much smaller amount than all of Megan's worldly goods. It's quite easy for me to say. I mean, she had a Saturn. She had a, a bank account. I had spent all of my money on an engagement ring for her. So as the song says, there was not much money to my name, just a few college credits and my top-notch brain. <laughs> One of the things that we notice in the Gospels about Jesus is that he's consistently talking about money. And I think that's because he knows how much money connects to our hearts, connects to what we value. Uh, it connects to our ability to survive in the world. So maybe that's natural. But what we love and value and feel anxious about often revolves around the world of money, doesn't it? So as he does in the chapter that we're going to be looking at this morning, Matthew chapter 25, we, we are resuming looking at the Olivet Discourse, that final sermon that's given to us in Matthew's Gospel, where Jesus is talking so much about the future uh, he's going to talk about money here. Uh, he's going to connect the idea of persevering until his return 
with the world of money and investments. And it's an interesting way that he does it. In a sense, what he's doing is giving us a pair of glasses that we can look at our lives through. He's going to ask us to think about what what we're invested in. And that, that might surprise us. But I think that what we'll find is that as we view our entire lives in investing terms, we see things in a whole new way. So I'll invite you to turn in your copy of God's Word. If you're using the the Bible that's in the pew rack in front of you, turn to page 830. But follow along in your copy of God's Word. I'll read Matthew 25, verses 14 through 30. For it will be like a man going on a journey, who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them and made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also, who had the two talents, came forward, saying, Master, You have delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also, who had received the one talent, came forward, saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him. Give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has, will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I think the main idea of our text this morning is that Jesus entrusts his disciples with responsibilities now and rewards them Later, Jesus entrusts his disciples with responsibility now and rewards them later. I encourage you to take notes through the sermon. It'll be useful to you. Uh, We'll study the passage in three points. You may want to write these down. Point number one will be the responsibility. The responsibility. Point number two will be the reckoning. The reckoning. And point number three will be the right view of the master. The right view of the master. 
the responsibility, the reckoning, and the right view of the master. So let's dive in. Point number one, the responsibility. Our text begins by saying, for it will be like a man going on a journey. The it is the kingdom of heaven. That's what he's been talking about in a number of parables. It's the third of three parables Jesus has told in this section. And all of them have this same theme of delay. So the one at the end of chapter 24, a master is delayed, and he returns at a surprising time, finds some of his servants about the master's business, some of the others giving themselves to sensual indulgence and hedonistic pleasure. Uh, Then at the beginning of chapter 25, we have the parable of the ten virgins, where the, the bridegroom is gone, some women prepare for his return, and some don't. Here we have a man going on a journey who calls servants to him and entrusts property to them. That's what we see in verse 14. And then verse 19, after a long time, the master of those servants comes and settles accounts with them. Delay, delay, delay. Why does Jesus make this point again and again? Well, because he knows six weeks later, he is going to ascend to heaven. That's what Mike preached on last week. And there's going to be at least a 1,988-year delay then until now, until his return. He wants his disciples to know how to handle the delay. He wants us to know how to live in the delay. Now, in in the parable here, there's some cultural distance that we have to to cross. There are a few things we need to unpack. Uh, It would have been somewhat common in that day and age for the owner of a a large estate to leave things in the hands of his servants, especially if he's going to be gone for a long time. Uh, And we can understand that they didn't have some of the things we have today, right? So no online banking back in that day and age, right? I mean, in that time, if you're going to invest your money, if you're going to use it for something, somebody's going to have to actually take the money and go and do something with it. So we are told that the master entrusts his property to his servants in the form of these talents. Now, it's a little confusing because we get our modern word for talent from this parable, but we use it now to mean natural aptitude and abilities. Well, in that day, it was just a unit of weight. A talent was something like 75 pounds. Now, this makes calculating. Everybody's interested to know how much money are we talking about here. Uh, Well, we can't really calculate it because a a talent of what? It could be gold, could be silver, could be copper or bronze, could be some other precious metal. Uh, Estimates, I've read estimates everywhere from a few thousand dollars to a few million dollars, okay? But we're talking about a significant amount of money. Um, The the owner is expecting that the servants are going to use it to make more. Uh, The first two servants, one with five talents and one with two, uh, notice they go at once and get to work trading. Might be curious what kind of trading. I don't know. Doesn't really matter. What matters is that over the course of this long time, the master is gone, they double his money. 100% yield. But the third servant 
instead goes and digs a hole and buries the money. Now, this is not unheard of. We, we talked with earlier parables about sometimes uh, to keep money safe, they would bury it in the ground in a place where, where only the person knows of. But the hearer of this parable wonders, uh, we all wonder the same thing. What is the master going to think about the burying of the talents on his return? Is that okay? Now, to decode the, the parable a bit, the master obviously stands for God, and the servants are us, those entrusted with things from him. As we interpret the meaning, I think we should first recognize that there's a sense in which this applies to all human beings, all people. Uh, God is the master, and human beings are the servants. Because God made us, he, he has a rightful claim on our lives, right? And on all that we have. So even if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, realize that you don't have anything that you haven't received. You didn't make a world where life could exist. You didn't conceive yourself. The time and circumstances of your birth were not up to you. You could have been born in a, a war-torn country like Yemen. You could have been born into a, a time of famine. What your family gave to you, the opportunities that existed in, in your life, the society around you, again, nothing to do with you. Now, now you might say, well, Mark, I, I've done good with the opportunities that I've been given. And that, that might be true. But there still isn't anything from your innate abilities to the raw materials of life to the opportunities that you've had that originated in yourself. So this text asks you, why haven't you acknowledged your creator? Why haven't you acknowledged him to be your master? But the context of this sermon Jesus gave, and this parable, it applies most directly to professing Christians, doesn't it? I mean, like the parable of the ten virgins that we looked at last month, we, we said it was aimed at nominal Christians, Christians in name only. People who say, oh, I'm waiting for the bridegroom, but they don't live like it. Well, here we have a servant who acknowledges Jesus as master, he or she understands what they're supposed to be doing. This is a parable to be preached as a message and a warning to professing believers. So we turn to consider what it means that property has been entrusted to us. What, what property has been entrusted? Well, that's a thought-provoking question for us, isn't it? What has he entrusted me with? The idea of entrusted property is where the language of stewardship comes from. We are stewards of the master's resources. Well, what has he made me a steward of? Well, on one level, we could say our entire lives, everything. But we could get more specific and think about our, our time and our talent and our treasure. Uh, do you realize that you're a steward of your time for how you use it? It's a resource that's given to you. It's limited. It can be used for good or ill, talent, we're all stewards of the natural abilities we have, that they're a resource, again, that we can use or we can squander, and our treasure, our, our money, it's a resource. The, the message is clear that it isn't ours. It's 
not properly just to be thought of as something to be used on ourselves. It belongs to the master. To be used according to his priorities. His purposes. A a Christian with extra money should be praying over what to do with those resources. But beyond time and talent and treasure, we could go on and think about different opportunities that have opened up to us. I mean, just think about all of the opportunities associated with you being you. You know people that I don't know. You come in contact with people that I don't come in contact with. You, you all live in certain places, certain neighborhoods, where that gives you access to certain people around you. Those of you teaching young children have a stewardship, don't you? Those of you working in politics have a stewardship. We could go on. The application point here, right at the beginning... Brothers and sisters, we need to realize that whatever we have isn't ours. It's somebody else's property. We are those who realize first by creation and then by redemption that we're not our own. We were bought with the price, the precious blood of Jesus. So everything is his. Our money is his. It's to be given, used according to kingdom priorities. Our, our homes are not ours. They are a stewardship to be used. Your membership in this local church is for the benefit of others. Your children are a stewardship. Do you live like all of these things are a stewardship from God? That's the first point that the parable presses on us. The responsibility that we have to steward the master's property. But I want to think secondly about the reckoning. Really, the rest of the entire parable, starting in verse 19, is about a day day of reckoning, isn't it? After a long time, the master comes, and the language here is he, he settles accounts with his servants. This is pointing to the second coming of Jesus in keeping with this whole section of the of the gospel. Uh, the first interaction there in verse 20 with the man who has received the five talents. He he brings them with the five talents more that he's made. And then we get in verse 21, the evaluation of the master. Look again at it with me. The master says, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Notice that the evaluation is both in terms of the job, which is well done, and of the character of the servant. He is good and faithful. And then the reward is laid out also in two parts. First, when he says you have been faithful over a little, I will set you over much. It speaks of the important point in Christian theology that though work after the fall of man into sin became filled with thorns and thistles, it became frustrating. Work was not originally intended that way. It was meant to be good and and fulfilling. And apparently in heaven, according to this text, we will again be working. Uh, The faithful servant is set over much. Points also to the great riches that the master has. But notice also the second part of the reward, which is entering into the joy of the master. That might be one of the greatest descriptions of heaven that you will find anywhere in Scripture. Heaven is entering into the joy of God. Did you know that God is a happy God? 
Psalm 115.3, our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. We can't even imagine being a being that can do whatever he pleases. Paul speaks in 1 Timothy of the glory of the blessed God. Another word for blessed is just happy. The glory of the happy God. God is a being of infinite joy. And heaven is entering into the joy of that God. When you come to your deathbed, I can't think of a better text to be meditating on than this one right here. Wanting to hear those words. Well done, good and faithful servant. Now, you may think, Mark, I've, I've made such a mess of my life. I, I, how can I expect to hear this from God? Well, only by His grace, beloved. He accepts poor sinners like me and like you. People who come humbly to the cross of Jesus and trust in what He did there to pay for our sin. His righteousness is imputed to us and His Spirit comes to live in us and empower us to live as we wouldn't otherwise have lived. The faithful Christian has every reason to expect this welcome at the return of Christ. Well, what about the second servant, the one with the two talents? I want you to look there and just compare verses 22 and 23 with verses 20 and 21. What you'll find is that they are word for word the same, with the exception of the number five being replaced with the number two. And that is a really important point. Because it tells us that it, it doesn't matter the amount of the stewardship, right? I wonder if some people might think that this story offends modern sensibilities about fairness. But there's nothing wrong with the master giving different amounts to different servants, is there? It's his money. When it comes to God, he, he's given the differing abilities as well as the different practical resources that match those abilities. There are lots of ways we could make application here. Uh, one is to the Christian ministry. We might be tempted to wonder why Bobby's church is so large and mine is so small. We need to come often back to those famous words written by the elder John Brown to a, a young student of his who had taken over the pastorate of a small country church. I know the vanity of your heart and that you will feel mortified that your congregation is very small in comparison with those of your brethren around you. But assure yourself on the word of an old man that when you come to give an account of them to the Lord Christ at his judgment seat, you will think that you have had enough. The same truth applies to every one of us. We're all gifted differently. It doesn't matter how many talents he's given you. Maybe you feel like what you've been given to work with is very small. You teach children. You keep the church grounds. Your, your tithe seems like the widow's two pennies. Friends, it's not how much. It's how faithful. Notice Jesus doesn't have the second servant comparing with the first servant. Hey, what's up with the disparity here? 
hey man, you spot me a few talents? When we compare ourselves with others, what we're saying is that the master didn't know what he was doing. We shouldn't do that. Don't compare yourself with anyone else. In verse 24, we we come to the climax of the parable with the evaluation of the third servant. He comes and makes his speech. He says he, he knew the master was a hard man, reaping where he did not sow and gathering where he had scattered no seed. So he was afraid and went and hid the talent in the ground. He hands it to him, thinking that this will be sufficient. Then in verse 26, we get the evaluation. Notice, instead of good and faithful, he is called wicked and slothful. Again, the first is his character, who he is. He is wicked. This leads to what he does. He's lazy. He is slothful. The master recounts what should have been done, since by the servant's own words, he knew that reaping and gathering would be required He could have at least invested the money with the bankers to get the interest. And then verse 28 to 30 cover the punishment. What he has is taken. It's given to the first servant. Verse 29 and 30 point to the reality of heaven and hell. For to everyone who has will more be given and he will have an abundance But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away and cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Heaven is a place of multiplying abundance. Those who inherit eternal life, those who have, get even more. Heaven has been well described as a place of eternally increasing joy. But hell, in contrast, is a place of utter lack God's presence is always described as full of light. Well, here, hell is described as outer darkness. It's a place where there's no joy, only pain, a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. The day of reckoning comes. An accounting must be made. It seems sadly to be a part of our fallen human nature not to acknowledge this fact I was trying to think of an illustration of this this week. I, because of what's in the news, I was thinking about the national debt. Uh, does anybody even know how much the national debt is and how much our children will need to pay back about it? It's easy as a society to live collectively oblivious to this. I was thinking about also one of the things I've noticed in coming back just this past year is the, the gambling culture that is that is rising up around us. I can't check a sports score without being asked to place a wager on all of these online sites that are now available. It's not as if the research on gambling is inconclusive. It's very clear that 30 to 60% of the money made by casinos and bookies comes from compulsive gamblers. What is gonna be the effect on a society that ignores the truth. Living in denial is easy. It's as easy as it was for me as a teenager to keep playing basketball for hours every afternoon, ignoring the project that was coming due for class. But friends, debts always have to be paid. 
The day of settlement does come. You don't have to live as if you're a steward of all that God has given you. You're free in that sense to live however you want. But that doesn't mean you won't stand before the master and give an account. That's the single greatest fact about your existence and about mine. That day, that great day, it will come. It's more important than our health or our wealth. It's more important than our fame or our fortune. It's more important than our accomplishments or our acclaim. That day, that great day. So do you live like a day of reckoning will come? A responsibility, a reckoning. There's a third thing that this parable presses on us, and it's what makes the crucial difference. Let's consider, thirdly, a right view of the master. You know, Jesus taught in parables because there's such great teaching tools. You'll forget much of what I'm saying this morning, but you'll remember this story. It will stick with you. It's something worth meditating on and turning over in your mind again and again. Uh, We find ourselves wondering, why did the third servant do what he did? Why, Why bury the talent? And about what his words to the master reveal about his heart. I wonder what you make of the third servant here. Three things seem clear to me from what the wicked servant says. First is that he has a wrong view of the master. He has a wrong view of the master. He calls him a hard man. Reaping where he did not sow and gathering where he did not scatter. He doesn't like the fact that he's going to do the work. And the master is going to reap the benefit. He doesn't want to work for someone else and be accountable. Rather be self-employed. Some of you maybe can relate to that in your place of employment. But, But the reader here scratches his head because we know it's the master's property and that he's a servant of the master. So why this attitude? I think Jesus told the story this way because the attitude of the third servant is the default attitude of every human heart. Fallen human nature at its core is a desire for autonomy. A desire to be our own Lord. To live unto ourselves. We're we're at war with authority when we come out of the womb. Whether it's our parents' authority, teachers' authority, government's authority. Most of all, God's authority. Of which all the rest are derivative. I was thinking about the, the modern war on a Christian view of gender and sexuality. It's just a manifestation of this same attitude, isn't it? Who is God to say, I'm a man or I'm a woman? Who's God to say, what should define marriage? Who's God to say, what I should do with my body? All this is to say that the third servant isn't a servant of the master at all, is he? He doesn't know his master. Is the master a hard man? The others didn't find him so. The third servant is wrong and doesn't even realize it. But secondly, his wrong view of God leads to an unwarranted fear. He asserts his autonomy, but where does that lead him? Verse 25, I was afraid and I went and hid your talent. Autonomy leads to what? Fear and hiding. It's what we saw in the first chapters of Genesis. Disobedience to God 
And then Adam was afraid and he hid. This is the same thing in your life and in mine. When we disobey God, the freedom that was held out before us doesn't end up being freedom. It's just slavery. I think one of the clearest things we can see happening around us in our society as it runs from any acknowledgement of God's authority is the pervasive sense of fear. We've certainly seen that this last year during the pandemic. But you can hear it in the constant narrative of victimhood that's all around us, where where there's a constant fear that someone or some group might be taking advantage of me, especially if someone claims there's a higher authority. It makes people afraid. But when it comes to God, the fear is misplaced, isn't it? It's unwarranted. Acknowledging God as the master and you as his servant leads to freedom, not bondage. When the Lord is your shepherd, what's the result? He makes you lie down in green pastures. He leads you beside quiet waters. He restores your soul. And even though you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, what? There's no fear. Wrong view of the master leads to an unwarranted fear. And then the third thing we can see about him, his unwarranted fear covers an irrational inactivity. Irrational inactivity. It doesn't make any sense. In all of these parables, there's this glaring insanity on the part of the characters. We read them and go, what did you think was going to happen when the master returns? You thought you could just do what you wanted, be slothful, not prepare, give yourself to self-indulgence, and somehow it would just be fine? The master points out how irrational the servant is. He says, if you thought I was a hard man and a taskmaster, just using my servants, then all the more reason for you to be afraid and at least put money in the bank and earn some interest. Beloved, it doesn't make any sense. A wrong view of God leads to an unwarranted fear, which leads to an irrational inactivity. Now, what does Jesus mean for us to do with this parable? Well, he wants us to save us from the fate of the third servant, doesn't he? Which is, to be clear, is a servant in name but whose behavior shows that he's not a true servant at all. The the third servant thinks he's a Christian, but he isn't. Well, how do I avoid that? One response might be, well, you better get busy. That isn't the pathway of the gospel, is it? The pathway of the gospel is repentance and faith in the grace of God revealed in Jesus. So if you haven't been serving the master... If, if you are honest and say, well, I haven't really wanted to serve the master. I've been thinking about him all wrong. Not realizing that he's a, a good God who has right authority. Repent of your sins and trust in Jesus Christ today. The forgiveness is held out to you. But there is application for the true Christian here. All of us need to recognize that when serving the master with the resources we've been given, there should be delight, not just duty. The duty is real, but the delight should accompany it. When when you find yourself beginning to view what what God has asked you to do as as drudgery, recognize that, that your view of God must have shifted somehow. 
You need to come back and remember how good he is. Maybe you've heard the quote, what comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. What kind of a master does God show himself to be in the parable? A master who provides resources for his servants, invites them to labor with him, and then rewards them with commendation and an invitation into his eternal joy. He's not a hard man at all. Have you fallen into thinking of God as a hard man, maybe because of your circumstances? Maybe because the delay seems long? Set yourself to pursue knowing what the master is really like. Open your Bible each morning this week, looking for his grace and his love. It's on all the pages of scripture. Get a book off of the bookstall like Gentle and Lowly or Knowing God. Just read and meditate about the character and the goodness of God. We should conclude. A responsibility we all have. A reckoning that will surely come. And a right view of the master which assures us we are truly his. We began by talking about money and investments. I don't know how you're doing in that area. I don't know how your 401k is or if you even have one. Whether you own property. Do you have a nest egg? I hope you can see that that doesn't really matter. The widow with her two mites and Barnabas selling property in the early church, they had the same idea. We are just stewards. Anyway, God often chooses the poor in this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom. No, the real question is not, do you and I have investments? It's what are you invested in? Let's pray together.